And I want to just say, I am so looking forward to our 43-year birthday. Can you believe New Life Church is 43 years old this year? Can we give God praise for that? So good. And one of the things I long for is for us to be like at the same place together. Because for years now, we've never really been able to just be together as one big family. And that's why we're getting together so no matter which service you're part of, we're wanting to everyone to join us at 1 o'clock. And for the first time in many years, we're hoping the whole church will actually be together in one place. So that's going to be pretty remarkable, all of us uh, celebrating what God has done, really. Well, I want to ask you if you ever heard how they catch monkeys in the wild. I actually heard the story growing up, and I wasn't sure if it was really true, actually, went to look this week, if it's really true, or there's like a fable, and there's actually YouTube videos on this. Maybe you've also heard how they catch monkeys, but this is what I'm told, is if you want to catch a monkey in the wild, all you got to do is bore a small hole into a coconut, and you empty out the coconut, and you make it just big enough so the monkey can just squeeze in his paw, and inside the coconut, you leave a treat, like a banana, or a slice of pawpaw, or just something that the monkey's going to want to get. Now, you attach that coconut to the tree, right? And what the monkey does is the monkey puts his head, squeezes it into the hole, and then he grabs hold of the fruit that you've left in there. But the moment he grabs hold of the fruit, now suddenly his hand is too big to come out of the hole. Now, there's a, there's a simple, simple solution, right? All he's got to do is what? Let go of the fruit. But you know that once a monkey has got that fruit, he refuses to let go? In fact, the hunter can just pretty chillaxed walk up to the monkey with the net. The monkey just refuses to go, refuses to let go of the fruit, and he gets caught. He gets ensnared. And basically, it's a monkey's greed that traps him. It's a monkey's greed that leads to his downfall. And I was thinking about that this week, and I came to the realization of this. There are some Christian monkeys. I think there are, there are some Christians, some believers, who, who so desperately want to hold on to something in this world that it allows them to get ensnared by the enemy. They so desperately want to hold on to something in this life, some kind of pleasure, some, some kind of habit, some kind of relationship. There's something that they just so desperately want to hold on, some kind of, uh, some kind of finance. I don't know what it could be for you, but there's, there's things in this life we hold on to, and it traps us. It allows the devil to be able to ensnare us. And I want to encourage you today not to be a Christian monkey. Look at someone and say, don't be a monkey. <laughs> Jesus put it way more eloquently. He says these words in the book of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 39. If you cling to this life, it is a trap. You will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. If you cling to this life, you will be ensnared. You will fall for the trap. You're going to lose it. 
But if you will give up your life for my sake, you will find it. Jesus teaches us again and again that the Christian life is not about what you can get. It's about what you can give. Christian living is not about greed. It's about generosity. It's not about taking. It's about sharing. God will always lead us to generosity. Christianity is not about getting. It's about giving. In fact, that becomes one of the biggest themes in Scripture as you're reading through the Bible You're going to pick up this theme of giving and generosity over and over and over again. Right through from the beginning of this book, right to the end. There are so many promises in here about what will happen if you live a generous life. In fact, it's one of the greatest and most talked about topics in all of Scripture. For example, for the last over two months, we've been challenging you to love people to love people that are really hard to love. And so I wonder how many times does the word love come up in Scripture? Because that's a pretty big theme. Any guesses how many times the Bible uses the word love? Come shout out some guesses. How many guesses? How, how many times does the Bible use the word love? 360, 500, 450. I feel like I'm at an auction. Sold. No, not sold to anyone, because it mentions it 714 times the Bible talks about love. Here's another pretty important theme, belief. How many times does the Bible tell you to believe? How many times does it use the word belief? Any guesses? 800, 400, 700. Okay, well, the word belief comes up 272 times. What about prayer? That's pretty important, talking to your father in prayer. How many times does prayer come up? 371 times. And then you get to the the topical theme of giving and generosity. Guess how many times the word give comes up? 2,152 times. If you're reading through scripture, it is inescapable. We know about half of the parables that Jesus taught on was about giving of yourself, giving, living generously. About half the parables even dealt with financial matters. You cannot read the Bible and escape the theme of losing your life, being generous with who you are, giving it all away. The Christian life is not about giving. Uh, Not about getting, it's about giving. It's not about taking, it's about sharing. In fact, this is how far the Bible takes it. It says that your life, when you give it, you've got to give it all. It talks about your entire being becoming a sacrifice for God. Listen to how it phrases it. Paul's talking to the Roman church. He says in Romans chapter 12, He says, I beseech you. Now, I want to talk about that word beseech because it's not like a word we often use. When last did you go to the restaurant and like, I beseech you to make me a cappuccino, right? We don't really use the word beseech, but it means I plead with you. I beg you. I urge you. I want you to hear the desperation, the strong encouragement that Paul's trying to convey here. I beseech you, please. I beg of you. Please, I urge you. Please, he says, 
by the mercies of God to do what? Well, what is Paul so, so strongly encouraging them to do? He says, by the mercies of God, would you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. This is what we are called to do, church. We are called to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And if you are unwilling to do that, you become a Christian monkey. Because you'll be so, so determined to hold on to something in this life that the devil will trap you with greed, with materialism, with jealousy, with covetousness. He, he's going to completely trap you in your own selfishness and self-centeredness until you decide to let your life go and give it fully to God as a living sacrifice. Where we actually say, God, my life is on my own. Because Paul is saying this, Jesus died for you. So in response, live for him. He died for you and he, he did more than just die for you. But because he died for you, you live for him. That's your reasonable service. Because Jesus did that for me, I now, Paul said, present my body as a living sacrifice. Now this word present in Romans 12, it's a very specific Old Testament word. In fact, that word present, if you look at the meaning, it's a priestly word. It was referring to a priestly duty. You see, in the Old Testament, there were these priests called by God, the Levitical priests called by God to come and make sacrifices on behalf of the nation. They'd come and make sacrifices in order to get the nation of Israel right with God again. And these sacrifices would, the blood would be shed for their sin. And when they came and made the sacrifice, they would take an animal and they'd kill it and they'd put it on the altar and then that animal would be completely consumed by fire. This was their act of presenting. To take a sacrifice and present it to God so that it could be consumed by the fire and the fragrance and aroma of the sacrifice would go to God himself. Paul is saying, you need to present you. And it's fitting that he uses this Old Testament priestly Levitical word because the Old Testament priesthood has not died. It's just been transferred. The Old Testament priesthood has not ended. It's just moved. And guess who it's moved to? You. You are now the priest. We are now the Levitical priests. We have been chosen as a priesthood. For some of you, your parents while you're growing up, they wished that you would become a priest. Well, after church, you can go phone your mom and say, Mama, I'm a priest. Look at someone and say, I'm a priest. That's what you are. That's what God calls you. You're the priest, 1 Peter 2, 5. Peter says, you are living stones. Listen to this, that God is building into his spiritual temple. In other words, you are the temple. Then it goes on and says, not only that, what's more, you are the holy priest. 
through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. That's everything that happened in the Old Testament temple. Paul Peter saying, you are the temple. Hey, and you are the priest. Hey, and you are the sacrifice. Everything that happened, everything that went on in that Old Testament temple, it's now you. You are the temple. You are the priest. And you are the sacrifice. And so as, as God's priest in this new covenant, I have a job to sacrifice. Now the question is, what do I bring as a sacrifice in this new covenant, in this temple? What do I sacrifice? The family dog? Do I go to escorting and ask for a pig or a lamb or a cow? Do I go shoot some doves and present them as a sacrifice? What do I now sacrifice? And the answer is me. I sacrifice myself. Your life is meant to be a sacrifice to Jesus. And I want to remind you, if you're following Jesus, if you're truly following Jesus, he will lead you to sacrifice, church. He's going to lead you to give things up, to lay things down. In fact, this is true worship. True worship is not just me singing a song that I like. No, no, no. Worship is sacrificial living, which means every day I'm saying, God, I'm giving this up for you. I'm laying this down for you. I'm giving this away for you. My will, I would have loved to do this, God. I'm sacrificing that choice. I'm sacrificing that need. I'm sacrificing that desire. I'm sacrificing those temptations. Every day, living sacrifice. This is worship. This is godly living. And so I want to ask you today, as you examine your life and examine your faith, I've got to ask the question, can you see the sacrifice? What are you sacrificing right now for God? Because if you follow Jesus, I promise you, he's going to lead you to sacrifice. But if you are in this just for what you can get from it, if you're only in the faith because of what you can attain, of what you can receive from God, and we have received a lot, but if you're only in it for what you can get, you're not yet truly following Jesus, can I say, because Jesus will lead you to sacrifice. Can I say that again? If you're only in this for what you can get, you haven't yet started to truly follow Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ will lead you to sacrificial living. He's going to lead you to giving up your whole life. Following God will cost you. And so what are you giving up right now to follow Jesus? Can you see the sacrifice? Because I want to tell you, the sacrifice that we give now, it's so different from the Old Testament sacrifice. Because in the Old Testament sacrifice, you know that the thing they put in the altar, the lamb or the dove, it was dead. Like dead, dead. Like they would, the, the priest would take it and they would, they would kill it and they would drain it of its blood. I mean, by the time it arrived on the altar, it had no chance of waking up. It had no chance of feeling the flames. 
I mean, there was no way this thing was going to move because it was dead. And yet, when Paul tells us to live now as sacrifices, he calls us something different. He calls us a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. You are a sacrifice that's still alive. And church, this is exactly where the problem comes in. Because you know what's different about a living sacrifice? Is I can start to feel the fire. Whew. Okay, God, I give my life to you. Whew. Okay, that's getting uncomfortable. Okay, Lord, I didn't think you were going to deal with that. Touch that, Lord. and whew. Okay, God, I don't know how much more of this. Heat I can take and God, no, 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 don't deal with that. No, 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 God, don't touch that. No, 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 God, I'm, I'm, I'm too busy for that. God, no, enough, enough, enough. And what happens? The difference between a living sacrifice and a dead one is you have the ability to jump off the altar. You have the ability to jump out of the fire. And so often we see Christians doing this. And so what do they do? A while later, they're like, okay, God. I thought this would be the answer and I thought this would satisfy and I was allured by this and I don't know, I thought this was better. But God, I've tasted and I've seen this is not good. You're good. And so I'm coming back. God, I'm rededicating my life to you. Okay, God, my life is yours. Woo, Lord, it's getting warm. Okay, God. Okay, Lord. No, why are you dealing with that, Lord? Okay, I'm done, I'm done. And we end up shortcutting God's processes again and again and again, needing to try, come, recommit our lives to the Lord. I'm going to try this again. <sighs> Can I do it this time? Okay, Lord, my life is yours. Running back and forth, saying, God, my life is yours. At the moment, things get tough and the heat gets turned up and the fire feels too warm. We're like, huh? I'm out, God, that cost me too much. No, 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 don't touch that. Lord, I'm not going to obey there. <laughs> and you want me to love who? <laughs> God, I'm jumping off the altar. And this is a danger of being a living sacrifice is because as God starts to burn away all the things in your life he doesn't want there, your fleshly desires, as he burns away your selfishness, as he burns away your greed, as he burns away your bitterness and your anger, we sometimes forget that he's only burning, burning it away for our good. He's burning it away to make us more holy, to make us more righteous, to make us more like Jesus, so that we can be sanctified and set apart. But it gets uncomfortable it gets uncomfortable being a living sacrifice. And I want to say, if you're comfortable in your faith, there's no ways you're sacrificing every day. Because it is by definition hard. It is by definition uncomfortable. And it will cost you the things that you love to hold on to. It will cost you the things that give you pleasure. It will cost you the things that you find satisfaction in in this life. By design, being a living sacrifice means you're going to stay in the fire and you will not jump off the altar, even when the fire gets hot.
And there are really three big things, I believe, as we bring our lives to God. There's three big elements to our life that we need to make sure come on the altar. And the first is our time. Everyone say time. You know, time is a precious commodity. We say that time is precious. It really is. You just speak to someone who's lost a loved one or someone at the end of their life, they'll tell you how precious time is. And time's a unique thing because you can't buy more. You can't, you can't find or kind of wheel and deal away to get a little bit extra. Everyone gets the same amount. From the richest man on earth to the poorest person on earth, everyone gets 24 hours a day. It's this unique thing. It's a powerful thing. But I want to remind you that God wants your time. In fact, if we are giving our lives to the Lord, if we're saying, God, you take all of me, essentially what we're saying is, God, you take all of my time. One of the most precious things about my life, God, it's yours now. My time is yours. Look at someone and say, my time is not my own. Now, church, I think when I look at how we live, we don't live on the altar. We live next to it. And we try to put little pieces on, right? And we're like, God, I know you need time, but I don't know if I have enough. Do I have enough time for you? Because, God, I've got some really important things to do. Got those emails to send. You know, God, I've got that sleep that I need to like have in the morning. And I've really got to catch up on that series, Lord. Please don't watch it with me. I don't I don't think you're gonna like that one, uh, Jesus. Uh, but you know what, Jesus? Here, here's a little bit of my time. I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try fit you in to my time. Yeah, Jesus, I want to, there's a little, if, if I can, if I can't afford that, that's yours. Listen, God does not want half an hour. He wants 24 hours. My life is yours. God, my time is yours. When I wake up in the morning and say, God, what do you want me to do with my day? Every minute of this day belongs to you. I want to be in constant worship, constant connection. God, I'm going to be talking to you through this day. I'm going to be mindful of you. I'm going to be worshiping you and no matter what I do. God, my time is yours. How do you want me to use your time? Isn't that a different way to live? Now I'm being a sacrifice. Now my time does not belong to me. It belongs to him. My entire life becomes his. And that's what we're told in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 15. That our lives are a Christ-like fragrance. Rising up to God. This is what happens as we step onto the altar. As we say in this temple, as this priest, I will present my whole body to you, God. My time is yours. What do you want me to do with what is yours? I present it to you. Second thing that we need to bring to the altar is our talents. Do you know that there are giftings and passions in you that are not there by accident, but there by divine design? There are things you are good at that you think, oh, oopsie, this just kind of happened that I'm good at this. No, no, no. It's there by design, divine design. 
Look at someone and say, it's divine design. Every skill you have, every gifting you have, whether it's good looks or the ability to make great coffee, whatever it is you do, that is good. It is by divine design and God wants to use it for his kingdom. I don't know what skill you have that's got you employed for those of you blessed enough to have work. But I want to tell you this, that God wants you to use those skills for his kingdom. In other words, I'm going to work not for my paycheck and not for my boss, but for him. Colossians 3, 23, we spoke about this several weeks ago, that whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as if you were working for the Lord and not human masters. And I think even when it comes to our talents, we're like, God, I'm just going to give you, you know, might serve in the church like once every two months or when I get to work, we're going to open in prayer. But the rest of my work, Lord, that's up to me. Get on the altar. Even your spiritual gifts. For those of you who have been baptized in the Holy Spirit and you are now active in the spiritual giftings that the Holy Spirit wants to work through you, do you know that those spiritual giftings are not for you? That it bless other people? The Bible makes it very clear why you've been given spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 4 tells us, uh, sorry, verse 7, that a spiritual gift is given to each of us so that what? We can look great. We can sound important. People can be impressed by us. No, no, no. It's only given to us so that we can be helpful. Because if God is leading your life, he's going to lead you to servanthood, to selflessness. Don't cling to your life, church, or you will lose it. Don't be a Christian monkey. We need to come and say, God, my, entire, my time is yours. My talents are yours. My passion is yours. My giftings, my skills are yours. Third thing is treasure. Everyone say treasure. This, I believe, for some people is the hardest one. And it's interesting because the Bible specifically mentions that when we give our treasures, our earthly treasures, our rands and our cents and our, our property and our income and the things we value, when we give that to God's kingdom, it specifically mentions that that becomes a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Listen to how Paul is interacting with the church in Philippi. And the people in this church had given to Paul so that he could plant churches. They had funded his ministry, his church planting ministry. Paul writes this in reply in Philippians 4.18. says, at the moment I have all that I need and more. And I am generously supplied with the gifts that you sent me with Ephroditus. They are what? What are these gifts that the Christians gave to the planting of the church? What are these gifts that the Christians gave to the work of God, the kingdom of God? What do they become to God? He says they are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. Do you know that every time you take from your earthly treasure and you invest it into God's kingdom, it becomes a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God acceptable, pleasing, it pleases God every time you give. Now, it got me thinking this week, like why does God care so much about whether or not we give from our personal resources to the kingdom? Why does it matter to God? And I thought of three things. The first thing is this, is because your money is not yours. Look at someone and say, 
your money is not yours. That's right, church. I want to remind you, if you are a Christian, it is not your money. It is not your income. The Bible teaches us in Psalm 24 verse 1 that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Are you in this world? The world and all its people belong to who? To Him. So why are you treating your money like it's yours? Why are you treating your income like it's yours? And I know some of you are like, but I work hard for that. But Deuteronomy 8 tells us that even your ability to earn wealth comes from God. So like, you don't get credit for that, that you're able to work hard because it's from God. We own nothing. We are, we are simply managers of what is God. Now, God has given some of you a lot to manage and some of you a little, but either way, it's not yours. It's His. Everything you own, every asset you have, every bit of income, it's His. Are you treating your money like it's God's? Because again, I think for a lot of us, we're like, Lord, Lord, like, you know, we pat ourselves on the back. We're like, come in, God, okay, this is yours. We're like, God, I'm going to give you that. Woo, I'm so good because I converted some of my money into God's money. No, 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 that, that's not how it works, church. For those of you who have grown enough in your faith that you are tithing and you're giving 10% of your income to the church, I want to remind you, that's not how it works. It's all His. And even if you tithe, God still cares about that 90%. He's still wanting to know what you're doing because this is what He wants. Your life to be His. Everything's a sacrifice. Are we saying, God, have your way in my budget? Have your way in my income? Because God, I don't own any of it. It's all yours. And I want to be a good manager. I want to be a good steward of what is actually yours. Second reason, I think it becomes a sweet smelling fragrance to God, money of all things, is that your love for money is actually in direct competition to your love for God. That's what scripture teaches us again and again and again. Your love for money is in direct competition to your love for God. Listen to this, church. If you love your money more than you love God, boy, will you struggle to give it to God because you love your money more. Woo. When you love God more than your money, you can do that cheerfully, right? Such a big difference. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I've always found it so amazing because the Bible could have said anything there. And it doesn't say this about anything else. It could have said, hey, you can't serve God and your family. You can't serve God and sex. You can't serve God and success. You can't serve God and fame. No, no, no. You can't serve God and money. Money is going to be the number one issue in your heart. It's going to be the number one thing that wants to take the place of God in your heart. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. You know that your giving is a spiritual gauge. It's a sign of what you really find important. It's almost like God is like, hey, put your money where your mouth is. If you find it's important, show that it's important. We can see your spiritual maturity by looking at your budget, by looking at what you're doing with your treasure. Because where your treasure is, your heart is. And when you find something is needed and necessary, you'll give to it. That's why we give to other things. Some of you find your kids schooling as needed and necessary. So what do you do? You fund it. You give to it. You might, if you're privileged enough, find medical aid to be necessary and needed. Or your car. If there's something necessary and needed, we give to it. Because where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. That's where we can see what is important and money is going to be the number one competitor. And the third reason, I believe, that when we give to God, it becomes a sweet smelling sacrifice is this. God, for some reason, has always just expected his people to fund his kingdom. He's just always done it. Think about this, guys. God could have done it another way. He could have guaranteed that every church in the world ever that opened, that the next day after their opening, they would walk into their offices and there would just be this pot of gold where God said to one of the angels, hey, dude, go chip some pavement for that church, right? Go in heaven, chip the gold. He, God could have personally funded every work of God on earth, but he never has. He never has. He has always just expected that those who are in would support it with their finances. He's just always expected that his people would fund his kingdom. He's never done it any other way. Just go, let's go through. I mean, you look at the Ark of the Covenant. This is so fascinating. Like God gives instructions for how to build the Ark of the Covenant. The place is going to house the literal presence of God. I can imagine the guys getting instructions from God. Okay, God, you want us to do this? And what's the size and what's the width? And then God's like, yes, and it must be gold-plated. And they're like, okay. Yeah, and the mercy seat must be like solid gold. Okay. And Lord, who's going to pay for that? And God's like, well, you are. Of course. God gives instruction for how to build the temple, right? In nowhere in this process of this elaborate temple, like in nowhere does God like supernaturally provide anything. He's like, this is what I want in the temple. These are the dimensions. This is the Holy of Holies. This is the inner court. I want a bronze laver. And I, I want this golden candlestick. Like he just goes on and he's just like, he's just spending their money. And he's like, cool. Like God, great. I mean, this is a great plan, Lord. Who's going to pay for that? No, you are. Because my people will always fund my kingdom. You look at the early church. I mean, these disciples are seeing some miracles. Their shadows were healing people. I mean, it's just like all this incredible stuff. And yet, for every church that's planted, how did God fund it? Only with his people. Guys, even in the ministry of Jesus, get this, listen. If the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, needed to be funded by human beings, then, then every single ministry has to be funded by human beings. Like, if Jesus himself needed human donors, uh, look at this in Luke chapter 8 from verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled from one city and village to another. 
He spread the good news about God's kingdom. So here he is traveling from city to city, spreading the good news. He says the apostles were with him. Also, some women were with him. They had been cured from evil spirits and various illnesses. These women were Mary, also called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, whose husband Chusa had Herod, was Herod's administrator, Susanna, and many other women. And then it says about all these people, the apostles and all these women. They were the ones, they provided financial support for Jesus and his disciples. Did you know that Jesus traveled with his donors? He traveled with his funders. As he was going from town to city, there was expenses incurred, and God just expected that it would be the new believers, the new followers of Jesus who would fund the kingdom. He's just always worked like this. He's never, ever used the angels, and he's never just dropped the treasure chest of heaven. And we know that God could. He certainly got, God has all the money. He owns everything. He could, but he doesn't. He just expects that if his children are in and they believe in it, they will fund the kingdom. This is how God has always worked. And so when we do, when we say, God, I love you more than money. God, you are the number one place in my heart, not money. When, when I say, God, I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is and I find your kingdom necessary and needed, so I will fund it personally. It becomes a sweet smelling fragrance to God. And church, I know we could just be takers and maybe some of you, you're, you're not believing or you've, you're brand new Christians. I understand. You're going to be in the season of taking, right? You're going to just come and you're going to take worship and take a message and take a kid's ministry and take a free cup of coffee and take the toilet paper. I don't know, but you're going to take, right? Because it's, it's what you do in the beginning. But eventually... If you are following Jesus, he's going to call you to do this. Where you say, God, I am willing to be a living sacrifice. And I will not be conformed to the pattern of this world. But be, I will be transformed by the renewing of a mind so that I can know what is your good and perfect and pleasing will. I'm going to be a sacrifice. And everything is yours. And it means we've got to be willing to stay on the altar when it gets hot. When it gets difficult. When you're facing that fire. When you're facing that trial. In fact, I love the way Peter says it. When Peter's writing to the churches, he's like, can you guys stop being surprised by all the trials? Can you just accept that that's part of life? Listen to how he says it in the book of 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved. Oh, he says it so nicely. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because I still hear Christians talking like this. They're walking with Jesus and they're trying to sacrifice and they're like, oh, why is it so hot? Why is it so uncomfortable and because they're seeing loss and because they're seeing sacrifice and because things aren't going how they planned and all this fleshy stuff are being burned away they're like oh no 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 this isn't right I shouldn't be in a trial 
I shouldn't be going through hardship. No, no, no. And they start questioning, like, why is something strange happening to me? As if trials are not part of the faith. And they'll be like, oh, maybe, maybe I've done something to upset God. Maybe I'm in the fire. So, so maybe, maybe I've lost favor with God. Maybe I must look if there's, like, sin that I, that I haven't dealt with. Maybe there's an open door somewhere, right? And they're, like, trying to find a reason for all the trial because they forget that they live in a fire. Listen. Trials are part of life. And the fact that you're going through a trial is in no way a sign that God has forgotten you or left you or, or he's not for you. Because imagine the apostles had that, that frame of reference. Imagine the disciples thought that. How would they have explained being in a prison, being locked in chains, being beaten? Wouldn't they have also said, well, God, you've clearly left me now. You clearly don't love me. What have I done wrong? But instead, you know what they do? They write the New Testament from prison. And you know what they're talking about in prison? The blessings of God, the joy of the Lord, the peace of Christ, the abundance of God, the freedom in Christ from jail. From jail. Why? Because it wasn't about what they had in this life. They weren't Christian monkeys. They weren't trying to hang on to something here. They can lose everything here, but they still have everything in Christ. So they have everything. Don't be surprised when you go through trials. God's going to use some of these trials in your life to burn away the parts of you that shouldn't be there. To burn away your idols. To burn away your selfishness to burn away your pride, to humble you. Peter goes on to say, he says in 1 Peter 1 verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is, by the way, more precious than gold. We, we know what we do to gold. We refine it in the fire because we see it as precious, but you are more precious than gold. Though it is tested by the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As you are tested by the fires, as you are tested, it proves the genuineness of your faith. You become refined in the fire. So that what? Your life results in praise and glory to God. Because you start to look more like Jesus. All the rubbish has been burnt away. You start to act like Jesus. All the impurities have been burnt up. Why? Because you stayed in the fire. And so here's what I want to encourage you guys. Don't jump off the altar. And if you're in a phase of your life right now where it's getting really hard to sacrifice, don't stop sacrificing. Look at someone and say, don't jump off the altar. Guys, I know what it feels like when you're just done giving up your time and you're like, I don't think I can give any more of my time. And I'm tired and I'm overworked and I'm despondent. I'm sick now. I'm not going to give my time. No, you stay in the fire. Those of you who maybe you're just done giving your time and your passion and your talents to God's work and you're, you're thinking you're overlooked and you're, you're not even seen and you take it for granted and you've done it for long enough. No, no, no. You stay in the fire. Those of you who are done, you don't want to give to God's kingdom anymore. 
right? And, and you're just like, oh, I'm under pressure and this is happening and I'm not even sure about this. No, 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 you stay in the fire. You stay, don't jump off the altar. Your entire life is gonna be a sacrifice. And don't be surprised when it feels like this is hard. Don't act like something strange has happened. We are now living sacrifices. Our entire life is given to God as a sacrifice. In fact, the way Paul reasons this, if we go back to Romans 12 verse 1, let's read it again. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to God. Then he ends it like this, which is your reasonable Service. Look at someone and say, that's reasonable. The word reasonable is a Greek word, logikos, is where we get the word logical. And actually Paul is saying, well, this kind of living, it makes perfect sense. This kind of living is very logical. This kind of living, man, this is a smart move. Why? Because when you have understood the mercy of God and the grace of God, and everything God has done and the forgiveness that he has given you and the eternity that he has assured you and his presence that will never leave you. When you've understood your adoption and your salvation and the deep love of God, when you realize what you have and you're truly grateful for what you have, the most logical thing to do is like, God, my life is not my own. You've bought it with a price. I gladly just give it all. This, this makes perfect sense. This is my reasonable service to give my life back to you. This is completely logical. This, is, this makes total sense. But if I have not yet fully understood the grace of God, if I still believe in some way that true joy and peace lies in this world and not in God's presence. Well, that's when the enemy has a, an opportunity to ensnare me and to trap me. You know, I've never met a Christian on their deathbed who regretted being selfless. I've never met someone on the deathbed who's like, oh, I just wish I hadn't done so much for the Lord. What a waste of my life. And no, no, it's always the opposite. It's always those who wish they had served him more, given more. It's in that time of your life where you have so much perspective and you realize as you're leaving this earth, wow, nothing here matters. And everything about God matters. Church, I pray we would get some of that perspective so that you and I can jump on the altar and stay through the fire. We don't have to rededicate our lives every few months because we're staying. And God, even when this is hard, when this is burning, when the heat is turned up, I'm not giving up on you. And I will give my life. I will give my time. I will give my talents. I'll give my treasure. Lord, whatever you need, it's all yours. It's not mine. Paul says this in closing in the book of Acts chapter 20, verse 24. I love this perspective. Paul says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. I wonder how many of us, including myself in this room, could say the same. But we say, Lord, my, my life means nothing to me. Paul said, my only aim is to finish this race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me 
the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace, Paul knew that the very best use of his time and talent and treasure was to use it for God. There's no better use of our life. And so church, I want to encourage you today, some of you, you need to get on the altar. You need to stop being in this for what you can get because Christianity is not about what you can get and we get so much. It's really about what you can give. Some of you are considering jumping off the altar. It's getting too hot. It's costing too much. God is touching things you didn't expect Him to touch and dealing with things you didn't want Him to deal with. Today, I want to encourage you to stay in the fire. Be faithful in the fire. Let God burn away what He needs to. And some of you, you're Christian monkeys. And it's just time to let go. I promise you, your joy and your satisfaction and your hope is not going to be found in this world. And if you cling to this life, you are guaranteed to lose it. Let's be living sacrifices to best use of our life. Can I pray for you? God, I love your church. I love your people. But I'm grateful, God, you love them more than I ever could. You know them, God. Every one of them is known by you and loved by you. God, you're aware of everything they're holding on to. Everything in this world that they're clinging to, that they should not be clinging to. Some are clinging to their time and they're unwilling to give it away. Some are clinging to their talents and passions. They're unwilling to serve you. Some are clinging to their treasures. They're unwilling to give to you, Lord. I pray, God, that all of us would come to a place of being a living sacrifice. God, that we would stay faithful in the fire, that we would not jump off the altar. Holy Spirit, strengthen us. Keep us where we need to be. It is not by might. It's not by power. It's by your spirit that we can do what we're called to do. So would you empower us, please? Strengthen us. In fact, church, I want to lead you in a prayer, but I do not want you to pray this if this is not true for you. I want to lead you in a prayer where you ask God to use you, where you ask Him to use every part of your life, where you give Him permission to use it all. And if you're ready to pray that, a prayer of sacrifice, well, you're welcome to join me now. And if you're not there, you're not ready, no judgment here. God knows your heart. To those who are genuinely wanting to give it all away, pray this dangerous prayer with me. Can you say this? Dear Lord, my life is yours and everything in it. I relinquish my permission my will, my opinions, I lay it down. My time is yours. Every talent is yours. All my treasures are yours. Use it for your glory. For your kingdom, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.